Our guest today has combined his passion for art with his passion for plastic surgery. He has taught hundreds of surgeons over the past 25 years to apply the art that must be combined with medical science to achieve optimal results with plastic surgery. To this end, he teaches a seminar, Aesthetics Boot Camp for Surgeons. This is Clinician's Roundtable, and I'm Dr. Andrew Wilner. With me today is Dr. Stephen Neal, a board-certified ENT surgeon and a fellow of the American Academy of Facial Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery. He is also a clinical instructor at the Oregon Health Science Center in Portland, Oregon, and on the faculty of the Art of Rhinoplasty course in San Francisco, California. Dr. Neal, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you. Dr. Neal, I understand you were an artist before you went to medical school. Have you found that to be an effective combination, or has it torn you in two directions? Well, it does take you in more than one direction, that's for sure, uh, constantly. But you've heard of the phrase, the starving artist, and I didn't want to raise my family on art. So I did go into science, medical science. I love doing things with my hands. And I remember when I was being interviewed at the entrance to medical school, I went to University of Texas. The interviewer said, you know, you're going to have to put this aside, all this art that you've done, so you can concentrate on medicine. And I was nodding my head saying, sure, I understand. (laughs) And then after I got out of that interview, I thought, why would I want to do that? Because it's a real part of my life. So I almost from the beginning was attracted to plastic surgery. And I didn't necessarily think that that was the artist in me that was beckoning me. But uh, as it turns out, it truly was. I started thinking, what else could I do in medicine and have the same kind of fulfillment? So I went into ears, nose, and throat with the idea of doing facial plastic surgery. I wanted to concentrate on the face. So that's where I went. It served me quite well. In fact, when I got into residency training, I went to University of California, San Diego, and Terry Davidson was my professor. And he said to me, if you would like to be the best at doing plastic surgery, facial plastic surgery, you should go into sculpture. And I was mainly a 2D artist. I was a painter and so forth. That's when the idea occurred to me, I need to branch out in sculpture. When I did so, there was a natural link that I wasn't concentrating on or didn't think beforehand. That's what I wanted to do. But after I started to do it, I could see there was a real connection. In fact, When I would go into the operating room and I would see things, I thought everybody had that same kind of an eye. And I noticed my professor would start asking me, what do you think about this and this edge and so forth? And I'd point it out to him and he'd look at it. This was rhinoplasty. And he said, yeah, I agree with that. And he came to actually ask my opinion more and more, even though I was a junior resident. So that got me thinking there must be something about what I'm doing or who I am It's very helpful to this. So that's how it started, and it's grown into a discipline. In fact, it's sort of like the tail that wags the dog now. I do sculpture as much as I do surgery or medicine right now. You've been able to combine those two things well, not only combine them, but to get an amplified positive result in both directions, I would think, that your art is making your plastic surgery better. And I don't know, does plastic surgery make your art better? Yeah, I think maybe you've seen some of my repertoire. I've done some massive works. I didn't plan on doing that. It just grew into it. I've done a monument. It's at the state park down in Salt Lake City, honoring the Mormon Battalion who helped to colonize the West and 
win independence in California. These figures are twice life size. They're 12 feet tall, and there's a whole bunch of them. I, I never had a dream that I would do something like that. And I did all this while I was still in private practice working on my patients. So it is quite a passion. More along that line, the American Academy of Facial Plastic Reconstructive Surgery had interest in what I was doing. And a number of the past presidents encouraged me to start doing courses for the academy for attendees. And I noticed when I was teaching these courses, people would have such a different eye. You could show them the same piece or the same picture of a patient, someone who was requesting a rhinoplasty. And they would see it so differently. You would say, how many see this part of the nose is too big? People would raise their hand, a certain percentage. And then you'd say, how many say it's too small? And some would raise their hand. And you'd say, how many say it's just right? And then another group would raise their hand. And I'm going, well, can it be all of those things? I don't think so. And that got me thinking that the eye is very critical in doing general plastic surgery. If you think about the discipline, it's unlike any other surgery in existence. It's true if you have finesse, you have a gentle hand, you're meticulous with technique, you can get better results at any kind of surgery. But plastic surgery is the only surgery that you are shaping. And if you're going to change the shape, you better know what you're doing to make it a more desirable shape. Anybody can make a deformity. But to improve on something, you're working towards a goal. And a lot of us will use computers and pictures, and then we use computer imaging and kind of give us a feel for it. But it's still inside the surgeon's head, and he's working towards that. I think that's what really sets us apart. Who's a good surgeon? Who's a good plastic surgeon? Who gets poor results or mediocre results? It has to do with what's inside their head and how they're imaging. Because we teach every kind of technique, every kind of surgery. We're, we do nothing in secret these days. We have electronic media. We go to conventions. Any kind of new surgery or suture or anything, it's being taught. So why is there such a wide variety in how surgeons achieve good results or variable results? And I think the biggest, the biggest factor is what's in their head. They have to see it and then they know when it's good, and they have to work towards it. And I think that's what sets us apart. People who make judgment calls, that's really the determinant factor. And I'm pretty passionate about that. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Andrew Wilner, and I'm speaking with Dr. Stephen Neal about his passion for both art and plastic surgery. Dr. Neal, you just explaining that the success of a plastic surgery uh, operation really depends not only upon the technical skill of the surgeon, but also on his uh, internal vision of what he's trying to accomplish. Is aesthetics something that you can actually teach? Oh, sure. Sure you can. You can teach it, and you can try to verbalize it and make people understand this is bad, this is good. But People have, even small children, they have a very strong innate ability to notice what's attractive and what's not. For example, there have been studies that show babies, newborns, if you will, they prefer looking at a face over anything else. And they will preferentially look at beautiful faces rather than ugly faces. And children, I noticed this with my own children when I was uh, sculpting their busts. I started out sculpting each one of my children. 
and they were young and they were horrible models. They were always running around, but I was amazed. I'd be working on something for a long time and then they would come up and they would point at something and say, that's not right, dad, or this doesn't look like me, or this is, and I'd say, get out of here, kid. What do you know? <laughs> and I'd put the piece away and I'd come back and I'd start, oh, this is wrong. I start working on it. And then their words would come to mind. Even children, they were right. Children have, um, we all have this strong ability to recognize what is a beautiful face and, and desirable and what isn't. I would always do this in the rhinoplasty course, the art of rhinoplasty. I would have the attendees, all of these are surgeons. Some of them had done hundreds of rhinoplasties, and some of them, of course, just beginning. And I would give them a profile and then an AP view of a face, and it was missing a nose. It was a female. And I'd say, draw me the prettiest nose you can, just simple line drawing. And they would all do that. And I've done that for, gee, 15 years. So I've done hundreds of these things. And almost without exception, when the surgeons would put them up, and I'd put them all on the back, paste them on the back wall, and I'd say, I want you to choose what you think is the best nose here. And almost always, people would raise their hands, and they would agree on one or two or three, and they would hardly ever choose their own. So even their own work, they would reject as soon as they found something better. And the reasons for that is because they have this image inside their head, but they can't create it. That's where art comes in, because all of us who do plastic surgery on the face, anywhere else, we are artists, and we are using the worst kind of medium. It's a living, breathing organism, and it has a mind of its own. Sometimes it heals strange, or you can't do anything with it in the world. You have to do only within certain parameters, but it's a very difficult medium and requires a lifetime to really master it. So I think just about the time we hang it up is when we're usually the best and it's taken decades to get there. So it's, it's a daunting task, if you will. Well, given that art is so necessary uh, for uh, good results in plastic surgery, is it part of the normal curriculum? I know plastic surgery residents have pretty intensive uh, training. Is art part of that as well? No, I've never seen it. I certainly didn't have any. That's why I've tried to give people this boot camp and aesthetics or aesthetic boot camp. Anyway, what we're trying to do is, first of all, teach the surgeons what beauty is square centimeter by square centimeter of the face. Uh, I always tell people, you hear this saying all the time, that I know that as well as I know the back of my hand. And so I would say, okay, don't look at the back of your hand. No surgeons look at it. Tell me, what is the longest digit you have? Everybody knows that's the third digit, the middle finger. What's the second longest digit? Lots of people would be wrong. And the reason is they would say ring finger or their index finger or, you know, the second or the fourth. And the truth is that it's almost an even split between humans, which is longer. And lots of people would miss that. They didn't know that their second longest finger was the finger it was. And I said, and the reason you don't know that is because you really don't know the back of your hand and you don't know the face until you can sculpt the face from three-dimensional memory in your own head. And I can prove that again and again. I have my whole career. The faces that I create now doing sculpture, I can do a good deal of it without a model and make it look exactly lifelike because I've done it hundreds of times. 
But for a person who's working on the face all together in surgery and so forth, especially a, a novice, they don't really know the face, but yet they call themselves masters and they can alter the face and, and change it. Now, we can't change everything tremendously, I understand. And rhinoplasty is perhaps the surgery we can do the most to change it. It's most like sculpture. Uh, and it's the hardest plastic surgery operation there is. And the reason it's so difficult is, again, it's a, an organic medium. And the second reason is surgeons are not always able to visualize exactly where they're going and, and how. So that's why I teach this class with a model, and we work on it all week. And, and everybody who does it, they come away a little more humble, and that's a good thing. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. You know, in my interaction with uh, surgeons, a lot of them tend to be, uh, well, let's, let's confident, I think, would be a, a good word. So how do they realize that they actually need this course? <laughs> Most surgeons, unfortunately, don't think they need it. What's really amazing to me is how many retired surgeons or almost ready to retire surgeons, the people who then get it, they really understand it. That's, they, they, wouldn't, they want to take it. But the young surgeon, it's, it's always a struggle to get him to admit they need some kind of training like this because it's not emphasized. And there's a reason for it. Nobody likes to talk about their failures. And young surgeons, they want to get all these techniques under their belt, and they have debts to pay and loans to pay off, and they want to get in their practice and work hard, and they can't take a week off, and it's expensive to, to do that in opportunity costs. But how much better the specialty would be if we made all of our errors in clay and not on a living, breathing person who has to wear your work? None of us like to talk about our failures. It's a really honest surgeon who'll do that because we're learning, and that's why it's the practice of medicine. But if we could master that or do the best we can with sculpture and combine that with surgery, if we did it early on in our career, I think we would be better off. The specialty would be better off. Our patients would be better off. So it's an uphill battle to try and get young surgeons especially to learn these things, even admit to it that they need it. So you're right. Have you had feedback that your course uh, helps the surgeons do a better job? Does it make them more competitive in the marketplace? Yeah, well, there's two reasons. It really does make you better. I have no doubt of that. I have not done thousands of rhinoplasty where I am in, in Oregon. People are more interested in facelifts than they are in rhinoplasty. But yet, I feel very comfortable with rhinoplasty in doing them. It's my favorite operation. And I've had attendees to the course come away and say they see the face better. And one thing that I, I guess I didn't emphasize much, but it's, it is important, and that is with all the fillers that are so popular now. All of us know where bad jobs for fillers are. They're all over on our TV screens. And surgeons themselves, uh, when they're putting filler in faces, and it's a different kind of sculpture, but you're, you're definitely doing sculpture. And the area in the cheeks and around the mouth, especially the lips, I've had surgeons say that it makes them better at doing that. And I think all surgeons should do fillers. I think surgeons who don't do fillers themselves are foregoing a tremendous opportunity, one, to market themselves, and number two, to miss out on how it improves your aesthetics. Of course, the other benefit to this is in marketing. How do you make yourself perceived better by the public than the guy down the street? Why should they come to you? 
instead of the guy down the street. And I always put on my recording when people are holding and I say very often, but trust your face to an artist. People love that and they can really see it. I'm an artist and it does help, but it also helps in marketing. There's a real benefit and a perceived benefit. Dr. Neil, I want to thank you for uh, speaking with ReachMD today and sharing your uh, insights and experience with the art of medicine. Thank you. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Wilner. To access this episode and others in this series and to download the ReachMD app, please visit ReachMD.com where you can be part of the knowledge. We encourage you to leave comments and share this program with your colleagues. Thank you for listening.